So, Mark. Yes? This week's movie has a villain with a fantastic name. Well, two villains with great names. Yes, but especially, I mean, Caster Troy, it just, it kind of like punches you. It does. It is a very good name. Yeah. And at the beginning of the movie, Caster Troy comes in from like having been out on the lam for a while. And later on, he like goes to prison and he gets out of prison. And each time he's greeted with a little like mini briefcase full of his essential items. It's like some pills, some joints, some cool sunglasses. Two his guns are, golden, his golden guns. guns are usually in it. Some chewing gum. So my question for you, Mark, is, and this is kind of our sequel to our Tangerine cold open where we asked where we would go after getting out of prison. Mm-hmm. What I want to know now is if you were coming back from being on the lam or in prison and you were offered a little suitcase like this, what would be in it? So I don't know why this is where my brain went first, but I stand by it. I want the whole briefcase to be filled up I want it to be a clean briefcase filled to the brim with unpackaged Tim Tams so you could fit even more in. (laughs) And not the Trader Joe's kind, which are good, but real Australian Tim Tams. And perched on top, a fully charged phone with with 5G access. Okay, I don't know what these things are. Tim Tams are a biscuit cookie, so it's like two chocolate biscuits... With a chocolate cream filling coated in chocolate. And they're Sounds like good. little rectangles. They're very good. What if you get sick of them, though? Like, why wouldn't you want, like, 95% Tim Tams and then just throw in a few Twix bars or Three Musketeers? Just well, case? I don't think he has to, like, live with them and go back on the lamb. Like, I think he can just go <laughs> into think... society and he can, like, <laughs> this go, is to, just my go to Mama Lucia's need. and have some pasta. <laughs> just the immediate in-the-moment. Just out of jail, looking for a solid chocolate cookie and a phone where I can just (laughs) veg out and not think for a while. So for me, obviously, number one, nice pack of Sour Patch watermelons. Oh, of course. The best candy in the shop. Then I think I probably want to have like, because you got to balance it out. I also want like a like greasy cheeseburger it doesn't have to be a huge one like it could be like like good stuff sized but just like a greasy cheeseburger that i can bite into and just like really savor that i like the idea of half of it being like a warming drawer because you don't want you don't want the candy to get melty oh well see the thing is like i do think this will have like some sort of engine to it because then either it's one of those like dinky portable ones that people would rig up in their cars or it's built into the briefcase obviously a little blu-ray player <laughs> this is exactly what i pictured as you open it and it's just one of those old school portable dvd players that were the h- height of technology right I and i think it's mine. rigged up i think it's rigged up to the suitcase so that when i open it the like dvd player opens with it and it's just like immediately hits play on jerry maguire i had one of those i was my parents very staunch against tv in the bedroom but they bought me a portable dvd player which felt like i was cheating the rule because i could watch my i love lucy dvds on my (laughs) portable dvd player in my bedroom well mark you just had to know what it was like being the ricardos yes i did i needed to know what it was like to be the ricardos nicole kidman Golden Globe winner, first in the world for an AMC ad, because <laughs> we all know Mark, that's why she's won. We have not talked about this, but AMC shortened the Nicole Kidman video, and it infuriates me. They did. I haven't been in a while. 
Okay, for starters, you need to be going to the movies more so that I can make jokes about, like, dumb upcoming movies. Like, I just got back from seeing The King's Man, and I saw that dog trailer again with Channing Tatum. And I was like, I want to just talk to Mark about this trailer, but I'm sure he doesn't know it well enough. Yeah. Anyway, they have shortened the Nicole Kidman video and really sapped it of its spirit. Because this video, which Rachel recited in full on our The Women episode, really tells you a story of Nicole Kidman arriving at the movies, which we come to for magic. And she's overcome by that indescribable feeling when the lights begin to dim and we go someplace we've never been before. And she watches uh, Jurassic World and Wonder Woman and La La Land. And now they've shortened it so that the dialogue, I don't know if it reads as choppy if you didn't memorize the original version, but it reads as really choppy to me as it jumps from thing to thing. Uh, She also now watches Jurassic World and A Star is Born, the 2018 one. But... I don't know. I feel like the narrative is gone. I'm no longer having an experience with Nicole. It's not really long enough to make an impression. It just feels like another AMC thing tacked on after, like, they tell me to turn off my phone. I am furious because it is the last vestige of pure sentimentality with no artifice on it at all, except for the Jurassic World being shown. (laughs) Look, that movie made a lot of money. I know. The fact that, I mean, I'm glad at least she is now watching one good movie. But I just, like, that moment really, unfortunately, does a good job summarizing why going to the movies is fun. Yeah. In a way over-the-top way. And, like, it feels like AMC saw us all making fun of it and thought, like, oh, we should just make a short version. And it's like, no, you have to either commit to it or not do it. I think they should use the exact same script, but start subbing in different actors and actresses. So what I've wanted to do is, because they announced they were going to do this, like, $40 million ad campaign for AMC theaters. Which, like, was new, because in the past you just, like, advertise movies and people go to the theater. But they were like, no, we're advertising going to the movies. And then they spent a lot of it on this Nicole Kidman thing <laughs> that is shown to people who have already come to the movies. And what I wanted them to do was, like, every two months, say, they give Nicole Kidman and the same script to different, like, canonical directors. So we get to see, like, David Fincher's Nicole Kidman AMC video, and Tarantino's Nicole Kidman AMC video, and Sofia Coppola's Nicole Kidman video. And we, Tim Burton, just be, like, she's stop motion. Exactly, just, like, different interpretations of this text, like it's a Shakespeare thing. I do love the idea of just substituting in different esteemed actresses every couple months, too. Nicole Kidman straight into... Annette Benning, followed up by esteemed character actress Margot Martindale, all doing the same script, all wearing the same sparkly silver jumpsuit, but giving their own little twist. A little while ago, my fiance and I tried to work out what the spokesperson should be for each theater chain under this model. Hmm. Where we were like, the AFI theater is George Clooney, uh, Landmark is Annette Benning, Regal is John Cena. I haven't been to a Cinemark in long enough to have an opinion. Yeah, I thought uh, Cinemark, maybe like a James Cromwell. I like that. I do feel like John Cena for Regal is really then pumping up AMC too much in comparison. Well, I got two answers for you. One, AMC has artisan films. (laughs) As everyone who has purchased a ticket on the AMC app knows... Certain movies are branded with a gold frame that labels them as artisan films. This was announced when they were like, we're putting small movies like Peanut Butter Falcon in AMC theaters. And this past year, I bought a ticket to the artisan film, a little $100 million picture called West Side Story. 
Yeah, I... The, the other thing is that when Regal launched me. its version of A-List, it was all, like, cheesy superhero characters. Like, I think Regal brands itself a little more like, I don't know, it's the movies, come and have a time. Whereas AMC tries to make it seem a little nicer. Yeah, I guess they do. They like pretense. I did forget about the artisan films, which nothing will surprise me when it has that artisan films thing. Because if you told me I could log on to the AMC app and Sing 2 had a gold frame that said AMC artisan films, I would believe you. Okay, I can confirm it does not because I have seen Sing 2. I will... Yes... It doesn't cost you any money, but there is still a cost. I don't know about that. Yeah, I definitely live next to the uh, the People's AMC because the only showtimes, there's no, there is West Side Story. That's about as artisan as it gets. There's no licorice pizza, which Regal does have. So, so. the AMC Georgetown has it. Tim, what's your AMC? Is it Courthouse? Courthouse. I've never been there. The Hoffman Center one is great because it is 22 screens, so you can see anything there. Yeah, that theater rules. I like it a lot. Um, Actually, we all discussed an AMC artisan film on this podcast because Dear Evan Hansen was an AMC artisan Stop. film. Stop. It's meaningless. Do you think it costs money or do you think it's just what they think sounds pretentious? I think they do the branding. Okay. Anyway, Tim, what would you have in your little briefcase oh when you got out of prison? <laughs> Uh, my, my briefcase would actually not look too different from Caster Troy's. Uh, I would also have the two golden pistols, but in my case, they would be squirt gun pistols, but would look like real pistols. Cause I don't want to hurt anyone, but sometimes you do need to scare some people. Um, <laughs> I would also have, wait, are, is this like, have you done the thing where you switch out the water for something a little bit more obnoxious? Oh, like seltzer. Yeah. 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 That's well. One has water and one has seltzer, and only I know the difference. So uh, that's that's a hijink or two right there. I would also have Bleak House because I have read 100 pages of it and will probably never finish it, which is too bad. <laughs> but just you can always pick it up and have something good in there. Wait, so, the, so your argument is this is a book I have started, have never bothered to finish. I am imagining that even after time in prison, where I had nothing else to do. I would still not bother to finish this book, but it is the first thing I want upon getting out. Well, so I'm not thinking of it as prison. I'm thinking of it as I'm on the lam. Like, I've got to run. The cops are coming, and I'm going to be away for two weeks. And when I come back, you're going to meet me at the airport, and you're going to have this briefcase for me. So prison, you're right. I probably would not have a book. But what I would have, finally, is I agree with the chewing gum. You can never go wrong with gum. You don't have to worry about, you know, do I have an appetite for this? Is it going to go bad? And, you know, you can fit probably 20 different chewing experiences in just a little pouch. So I think that was a great call on his part. Speaking of On the Lamb, I just need to share this because I watched an episode of Golden Girls today where they wrote off one of their boyfriends. They wrote off Rose's boyfriend by having him come out as being in witness protection because the mobster that is trying to kill him is reported as dead. And then when it comes out that he stages his death, he has to go back into hiding in a new place. And that is why you never see Miles again. And it's the most wild thing in a show called Golden Girls. That rules. Was the mobster set up in previous episodes? Like, did this no, conclude an arc? Absolutely not. He's known for being boring. So they're having a party where he's just like discussing Robert Burns. And then 
on the TV, the news says, like, Johnny Big Mac Gorgonzola, or whatever terrible Italian (laughs) name they gave him, died in a car explosion. And then he's just like, I'm free. I can be my real self again. That has to be up there for the most uncharitable way to kill off a character, you know, along with Poochie. He doesn't die, but he does. He has to go back into new witness protection. Yeah, erase, uh, discontinue yes. the story of the character. I loved it because it was so out of the blue, but unrelated to this conversation. I just had to share this because I can't stop thinking about it. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It feels like the kind of situation that could have been in this movie. Oh, if they added a witness protection element, I'd fully believe it, but... This movie doesn't need to be added to. I gotta tell you guys, I said earlier that, like, I literally saw The King's Man and then biked home, ate a slice of pizza, and I'm recording this podcast. And when I was eating that slice of pizza, I just was, like, pulling up scenes from this movie on YouTube because King's Man, no good. It's like they made a movie of just the cutscenes. And I was like, I need to just get back in the headspace of this great action movie. So I just watched a bunch of the fight sequences like 20 minutes ago and so i'm really hyped about this (laughs) i think it's time to start the show because i have a lot of thoughts about the film face slash off and we gotta take care of them before the minimal romance yeah (laughs) yeah welcome to we love the love a hollywood romance podcast i'm mark and i'm gay and i'm will and i'm a ginger this of course is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today can you take a face off of one person and put it on another one. And even if you can, should you? I, th- if you can, you should. Uh, the <laughs> other question is, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even people? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. Or if there is, like, a logical romance, but also some weird flirtation with a daughter. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are welcoming back our great friend, Tim Lyons, to talk about John Woo's 1997 film, Face Off. Hey, everybody. Now, I think none of us had seen this before, right? No. I I had not. I only know of it because of its existence in, like, the cultural lexicon of a movie where Nick Cage and John Travolta switch faces. Right, it's a well-known premise, but I had never actually gotten to glory in it. I also thought... Because of the movie Spy, where Jason Statham's character says, I know we have a face-off machine, I thought it would be much less surgical than it turned out to be. I thought it was going to be more like sci-fi fun machine. No, Mark, as you know, your face is held on by, like, skin around the edge of your face, and if you do a little incision around there, you can just pluck somebody's face off and then put it on top of another person's muscles. Yeah, this... This movie definitely, I was never really interested in seeing this movie because I feel like with the premise and the name, which are probably inextricable, and the, you know, two stars at the top, it just feels like it's, you could see the studio saying this has a high box office floor, right? Like we can put out a hunk of garbage and we're going to make back our money in two weekends or the first weekend. And I was very, very wrong as I found out. I think part of it too is like the three of us we're all like young single digits when this movie came out. So we were not aware of it on its release. We like knew the basic premise, but we very much grew up with a John Travolta and a Nicolas Cage who had lost a lot of their luster. Like they were known for wacko performances that didn't work. And so 
putting the Travolta and Cage that I at least had in my head into this premise, I expected it to not really play. I expected it to be like at best Ghost Rider. But instead, like their energy is perfectly keyed into this movie. And some of it's John Woo, and some of it is just, like, the two of them at the height of their powers. Like, Travolta post-Pulp Fiction, Nick Cage in his, like, L.A. Confidential, The Rock, Con Air, period. I, like, it, yeah. it just works. And on top of that, they are playing each other and doing a pretty darn good job of it. I think Travolta's Cage is incredible. I think that the thing this movie did well is you have to cast two actors that are both capable of being insanely detached from reality and a more grounded performance. And you have to add in the element of doing it while impersonating another actor. Right, like, so originally they wanted Stallone and Schwarzenegger, and I think that version of this movie doesn't work. No. No, because it wouldn't be fun. Right, and I like both of those guys deployed well. Neither of them is a good enough actor to pull this off. Yeah, you have to have real actors for this the biggest surprise to me is when i watched it i was like wait this is good because it exists in our cultural lexicon more as a joke and then i was just looking at some of the reception of it and people at the time were like this movie is good yeah this movie wasn't like a cult classic it wasn't pander anything people loved this movie at the time but the premise is so ridiculous that it is now just a joke I'm going to tell you the ultimate, like, laundering of this movie being good. So, Face Off gets remade in Hong Kong, where John Woo is from, as a movie called Infernal Affairs. The director of that movie, Andrew Lau, he's like, I love the story of Face Off. Obviously, the premise is a little ridiculous. So, I'm just going to have the two people switch identities. Like, they're not going to switch faces, just identities. And so, it's like a crime movie where that goes on. That movie was a big hit. It got optioned to be remade in the United States. And... Infernal Affairs, the job swap movie, that's a remake of the American face swap movie Face-Off, that gets remade in the United States as a little movie called The Departed. (laughs) The Departed is like the grandchild of Face-Off. I think I genuinely am not sure which I preferred as a viewing experience, which I know is heresy because obviously The Departed is the far better film. It won Best Picture. Be laughable for Face-Off to be nominated. But I feel like there's there's something so much more confident and grungy about Face Off and what it is. And Depart is a bit of a kind of classed up pretending to be what Face Off really is. True. Also, also, hear me out. John Travolta and Nick Cage switch faces. <laughs> yeah, Tim, I'm going to push back on the, like, obviously it shouldn't be nominated. I think this would be an entirely defensible Best Picture nomination, especially now that we're in the 10 Best Picture era. like. Back then, it was only five. But the list is, like, Titanic, as good as it gets, The Full Monty, Goodwill Hunting, L.A. Confidential. It's not a bad list, but, like, I could see Face Off fitting in there. Did either of the uh, leads get Best Actor noms? No. The only Oscar nomination that it gets is for sound editing. Really? Yeah. Best Actor that year, Nicholson wins for As Good As It Gets. Damon is up for Goodwill Hunting. Robert Duvall for The Apostle. Peter Fonda for Yuli's Gold. And Dustin Hoffman for Wag the Dog. I mean, I can see giving it to Nicholson over these guys, but I I was thinking about right after we finished it, or going back and forth on, you know, would I would it, a recasting work? And I think the other way you could do it is you just have someone, the Sean Archer character, be an unobjectively wholehearted, morally upstanding, zero gray, you know, 
just black and white morality, like a Tom Hanks. And you have the Nick Cage be just a, you know, someone who's good at playing pure evil, like a, you know, Steve Buscemi, Clancy Brown, even like a, you know, John Malkovich. Wow, I love Clancy Brown for that. And so when you switch, it's more, it's jarring just for the actor to play, you know, for Clancy Brown to play like, you know, the sweetest person you can imagine for Tom Hanks to play just this, you know, vile psychopath. But I think on the other hand, then you don't have Travolta and Cage already both a little bit off the rockers, just in slightly different ways. And you just have kind of a corkscrew effect where they're just weirder and weirder as each of them try to play the other playing the other. Yeah. So like Michael Douglas is a producer on this movie. And when he came on board, the other producers were like, maybe we can get Michael Douglas to star in this as Caster Troy. And then like Harrison Ford as Sean Archer. And like, there's a little bit of what you're describing in that because Michael Douglas is like our cult art, like film's greatest classy ish scumbag. And Harrison Ford has played like eight different heroes. But I think you're right that you would have to push it further if you were going to go in that direction. I do enjoy the like both of them are intense in different ways. Yeah, because it also helps justify this, like, very strange relationship that they have, where Caster Troy is this, like, international terrorist mercenary that, like, every government and every government agency should be trying to track down, but it's just generally understood by everybody at the FBI, like, no, that's Sean Archer's guy, like... They clearly have this relationship. I rewatched the opening sequence while I ate my pizza at the carousel. And even there, it feels like, even though there are no words, like there is this relationship between the two of them. And I think it, you get that sense because these two guys are just like so bonkers. Like these are two intense, swaggering weirdos. They both and they have to like be obsessive. You know, it's like, like heat where you turn the dials up to 15. Because they have to know each other well enough to believably play each other. Because you can't get all the way by just shouting, I'm Caster Troy, over and over again. Wow. This movie. The opening of this movie is ridiculous. Because I was just like, is Nick Cage about to snipe a child in the first, like, 30 seconds of a movie and the answer is yes and the answer is yes but kind of accidentally but yeah it's the opening credits play over a sepia toned slow motion john travolta playing on a carousel with his kid as nick cage with this like ned flanders mustache sits on a hill and then snipes him and the bullet goes through him and kills his kid i do think we need to address now because it's important this movie is called Face Off, and it's about swapping faces. Did they ever have a title drop in this movie? Uh, no. 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 I feel like we would notice it. You want to take his face? Yes. His face. Oh. The eyes, nose, skin. It's coming off. The face. I mean, they, they mentioned faces a lot, but... Yeah, because I was going to say, the... the main way that this family shows affection 
is just by like <laughs> running their fingers down the other person's face and i hated it every time it happened and i was just like we get it this movie is about faces this is unnecessary and it's in the end so weird and so funny and like that's the tell at the end that oh my god he really is archer here's the thing that works as a tell because no other person would do that that yeah that's fair because it is weird but i think you know as long as we're talking about this you know there is the scene where caster troy looking like john travolta like sean archer does grope the secretary right he's handsy on people he's you know groping woman being very aggressive but what he doesn't go for is the face right he's mostly a butt grabber yeah he does love butts the ultimate version of it is when we're introduced to him in the convention center and he's dressed as the priest and is like dancing around to the hallelujah chorus and then goes up to one of the singers and like grabs her butt and is like whispering in her ear about how he wants to have sex with her. I assumed that she was like part of his crew and was in there and he was just playing on, on the fact that they had gotten away with it. But then she doesn't come back, so I think she was just a member of the choir? This movie really needs you to believe that Nick Cage is the most sexually desirable man out there. Right, yeah, you want to suck his tongue. That made me so uncomfortable. I mean, she really, I mean, he sticks out his tongue and she just slurps it in. I mean, I guess she is committed to her job as an undercover agent. So... This movie is written originally as a spec script by Mike Werb and Michael Kaliri in like 1990. I was reading an interview with them, which I'll be posting on our social media, where they said they wrote it the weekend after they saw Die Hard 2. And they were like, action movies are selling. We can write an action movie. This one was originally set in the future. So the face swap technology made more sense. And it was also mostly set in a prison. Like it was about a guy like getting out of a prison riot and then going into the city, which was, like, future San Francisco, where you have, like, the Golden Gate Bridge is now, like, a campment for unhoused people. There are flying cars. All manual labor is done by chimpanzees. Now that's interesting. But the movie, like, just kind of floated around. The WB, uh, Warner Brothers optioned it for a while. Then Paramount picked it up. And a couple different directors were attached at various points. Like, Rob Cohen was on it for a while. And then... Eventually, they go to John Woo, and they're like, John Woo, you have just come to Hollywood. You should make this movie. He turned it down a bunch of times because his last two movies, he'd gotten a lot of studio interference and was like, I don't want to do a big sci-fi action movie where the studio is going to be all over my case. So Paramount said to the writers, they were like, make it not be set in the future, and then we'll leave John Woo alone because it'll cost less money. So they did that, and then they were on with John Woo. So this is like basically his first Hollywood movie where he had full control of the movie. And, like, it is very much a John Woo movie. Like, it's got all of his, like, slow motion. You got doves flying all over the place. I was reading a review of the movie, and um, I I think this sums up John Woo's style really well. I've only seen this and Mission Impossible 2. But, you know, it was saying about how John Woo's attention to style and complete lack of tongue-in-cheekness about the whole thing is if John Woo were shooting a movie on the JFK assassination, he would have Oswald use two rifles. Yeah, but this movie doesn't work if it's making fun of itself. Like, it doesn't work if it's a Marvel movie. No, this movie only works because it is so committed. It has to be 100% serious. And, like, Tim, this is what you're talking about. Like, it has to be deeply emotional about it all. Like, we need to see 
you know, mirrors or another John Woo thing. But, like, we need to see Nicolas Cage staring at himself in the mirror with anguish because he's looking at the face of the guy who killed his kid. We need, when Sean Archer is initially offered the choice to switch faces, he can't have more than a second of, like, furrowing his eyebrows at the implausibility of the technology. His immediate thought needs to be, what will this mean for my family? Right. And the fact that it, like, it, it just works. These actors are so good at such nonsense. This movie shouldn't work, and in fact, it's great. The two of them are just so perfectly attuned to each other that you just, you buy it. The scene where the two of them are emotionally staring at the mirror with the other one on the other side. Because they're looking at the person they want to shoot, but the person they want to shoot is actually on the other side. It's so good. This movie rules. It's also, like, a great example of, like, because, you know, Matrix Resurrections just came out, so I was rewatching all the Matrix movies. Like, a great example of the kind of action the Wachowskis were pulling on in that movie. You can see, like, oh, this goes into that. Because we live in such a post-Matrix world that it is really interesting to see the inspirations for The Matrix. I will say this is a far uglier movie than any of the four Matrix movies, and not not really in a bad way. It's just, it's part of the movie. It's almost like the mirror opposite of The Matrix, where, you know, the ability to manipulate reality means that you can be more graceful in using martial arts to move your body and move bullets. Here, there's no, it's just sheer force, sheer physical will. And trying to dominate someone else by, you know, shattering glass, blowing up airplane hangers. And kind of like an endless effort where the Matrix, in a way, is like reveling in how easy things become once you are awakened and you can sort of access your full potential. In this one, like, things just get harder and harder as it goes on, culminating in the boat chase and that, like, brutal fight at the dock. Why, in this movie... It's all very, like, normal, natural colors, tending towards the dark, except for the pastel hospital room. Why is the surgery so brightly colored, and all of the, like, implements kind of cutesy in the face-off room, and yet everything else is just so natural? Except, I guess the... The hole, or whatever they call the prison, is also kind of weirdly colorful. Yeah, I love the production design on the prison, where there's this, like, enormous, like, 1984-style screen that's just projecting images of nature all the time. And then, like, during the prison riot sequence, it's turned into static, which just casts all this, like, weird, chaotic light on the scene. But then also the fact that it is entirely metal, and they're all wearing these giant metal boots that are magnetized. So they can be magnetized to the floor at any time. The magnet boots are so good. So you know, those are the same boots that the Goombas wore in Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> of course they are. Like, they are literally the same boots. They weigh 25 pounds each. It's almost like they didn't feel that that was enough value for that material. Like, it would have been wasted if it were just used for Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta really treasure those great props and costume pieces. Surprised no one was willing to buy those for, you know thousands of dollars at auction i guess the real question is did they think about using magnet boots before they knew that they were in mario brothers to me it's just funny because like we are explicitly told this is a cia black site and everything we know about those from afghanistan is that they are like the most low-tech places because they don't want to put a lot of resources that could be tracked towards them but instead this is the most high-tech place we've ever seen 
Yes, but it's on an oil rig, so it's in international water. So what can you do? I guess oil rigs can't be that far out, actually. It would still be in U.S. water. Yeah. Yeah, it's in international water, but it's like, what, 50 yards from the (laughs) island, from Catalina? That's the thing. I love when Sean Archer, as Caster Troy, this movie's impossible to talk about, (laughs) gets out. He, like, gets to the roof of this prison, and he discovers he's on an oil rig. We see him jump off, and then it just cuts to, like... He's at his wife's work or something like that. Yeah. Like, okay, I guess he, we're good. He, like, swam to the shore, I guess, after falling, like, a hundred feet off of an oil rig into the water. Then manages to just show up at the hospital. It's so funny because he jumps into the water from, you know, a high height. But this isn't, like, Brooklyn Bridge height. I mean, it's, you know, certainly survivable. There's a helicopter. It's high that enough that I worry about the surface tension. The the helicopter sees him jump, and then the next thing you see is Caster Troy in Sean Archer's with Sean Archer's face getting told, "Oh, he's dead. Don't worry about it." Like, there's no question of you know maybe we should see if he resurfaces. I mean, we have this helicopter surfacing. You know, I mean, they say they did over. not find the body. I just feel like with all those resources, maybe you send like a diver down. Certainly, he's trapped on that shoreline. You know what? Movie's still great. (laughs) I mean, they are in L.A. in the movie, so I guess he might still be off the coast of L.A. It just happens that the CIA black site is off the coast of Southern California and not really that far. What I do like about this movie is with stuff like that, like there's no lampshading in this movie. It's not like we know this is implausible, so we're going to hand wave with some stuff. It's I feel like if I explain that or explain my, you know, concerns with anything with any of the writers or directors or even actors, it'd be like, I don't understand. What are you talking about? He stayed underwater. The helicopters left and uh, he made his way to shore. Like, what do you mean? How did he he do? I don't understand the question. Right. You just have to accept that this is all 100 percent true to everybody experiencing it. Uh, This movie is so good. And you know what? On top of that, it was a hit. And so often, especially now, these like weird movies we wind up shouting about for years because nobody saw them. This was the 10th highest grossing film of 1997. That's incredible. Yeah. It opened on June 27th, 1997 in first place with $23 million ahead of Disney's Hercules, Batman and Robin, My Best Friend's Wedding, Con Air, in theaters the same time as this, and The Lost World Jurassic Park. That's a great month. Yeah. I mean, that's, I was looking at that top 10 because I was just curious. Here's the top 10 of the box office for 1997. Mark, you want to try guessing some of these? 90, the late 90s are kind of a, a hole in my knowledge. I okay, don't well, know if okay. I could Tim, do it at Tim all. will help you out and you'll get some of these easily. Okay. The number one movie of 1997. Titanic. What? Yeah, Titanic. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm supposed to help Mark out. All right. I'll opt out. No, you can. No, no. You jump in. Take lead. All right. Please do jump in. Number two is a sci-fi comedy. Lost in Space? No, that's 99, I think. Okay. This became the start of a franchise. Men in Black. Yes, the original Men in Black, which I watched for the first time last year. Good movie. I have seen it. I feel like I've seen a lot of movies from this era, but I could never tell you what year they came out. Uh, Number three, I also just mentioned, it is a sequel. Lost World. Oh, Lost World, yeah. Yeah, The Lost World. An okay movie. Number four stars the biggest comedy star of the 90s. Is it the sequel to Ace Ventura? It is not because that came out within like 13 months of the first one. Yeah, it did, didn't it? But you are right. It is a Jim Carrey movie. The Mask? 
No, the mask is like '94. It's that same like incredible like breakout year for Jim Carrey, where he has like three yeah, the mask, giant hit, movies. Ace Ventura. Oh no, this one is like more high concept. Not me, myself, and Irene. Oh, is no. this um which one? He's in Butterfly Effect. The cable no. guy, His, or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. That's later. Okay. Who's in it besides Jim Carrey? Um, Maura Tierney, Carrie Elwes. This this is not one of his more star-studded movies. Uh, <laughs> Truman Show? No, I mean, that is a star-studded movie. Yes. I am now just naming Jim Carrey movies. Yeah. Um, it's He plays a lawyer who oh, is cursed. Oh, uh, liar, liar, liar. Yeah, liar, liar. I have not seen it, so I had to go to Wikipedia to get the description. I have seen it. I enjoyed it. Number five stars one of the great action stars of the 80s and 90s. We've mentioned him already. Uh, This movie is also featured at the Smithsonian in a compilation video. It's about the president. Oh, Air Force One. Air Force One, yeah. Harrison Ford. There's this great video at the National Museum of American History. There's an exhibit on the presidency that's really good. And there's a section on the presidency on film. And they talk about, like, all the different things the president has been. Like, a woman and a black person in, I want to say, Deep Impact, whichever asteroid movie Morgan Freeman is the president in. And then they talk about how he's been, like, a romantic lead in The American President and an action hero in Air Force One. Uh, so I have an, a question for you. Do you consider Air Force One and Con Air to be twin movies? I've never seen either. I've also not seen either. I've seen Con Air. I feel like I'd have to see Air Force One to really judge. But also, you could say part of the idea behind a twin movie is that you don't, you should know whether it is or not without having seen both ones. Yeah. I I don't know. It's harder from this point, you know, where we weren't around to remember it. And it's not as obvious as like Volcano and Dante's Peak. But there might be something to that. I don't know why, but for the longest time, I thought Con Air was like a rom-com. I mean, I would watch a rom-com remake of Con Air. But Con Air, to me, I think it just sounds like... I think I associated it with the name Connie. And I was like, oh, Connie falls in love on a plane. I had, like, (laughs) a whole story made up in my head, unrelated to what the movie is about entirely. There might be something to... You know, we did our Red Eye episode, and we made a bunch of jokes about how it was a listener request, but had no legitimate romance. Like, there's something to... Could you set a rom-com in the time it takes for, like, a cross-country flight, like, with all the standard beats of, like, getting to know each other and, like, being into each other and a fight, and then, like... Well, Red Eye is kind of, uh, you know... Right, so I I mentioned that the difference in in Red Eye, one, (laughs) is that Killian Murphy is never actually flirting with her, and two, they don't end up together, they end up trying to kill each other. That's true. I mean, I think if you did, like, a full international flight, And the thing is, they'd probably have to be on one of those, like, Emirates Air business classes where they actually can have Like the little pods? Yeah. Because a good rom-com only works if they have time apart as well. Interesting. Because you need to see them as individuals. I feel like we're stepping slowly towards inventing passengers. Is that... That's not a rom-com, though. It got reworked into kind of being a rom-com. It was not supposed to be one. I like the idea with passengers and like the twist that the person who woke up first actually did intentionally wake up the person who woke up second, but it's just on a flight across like the Pacific or something. And the person's <laughs> upset because they were trying to sleep through the whole they flight. Just tur- they be just well rested and not jet lagged. So I like this. This is good. Um, the rest of the top 10, number six, as good as it gets. Number seven, goodwill hunting. Like I've had, 
this is a boring thing to say. People say it all the time. Imagine Goodwill Hunting being the seventh highest grossing movie of a year. Number eight, My Best Friend's Wedding. Number nine, Tomorrow Never Dies. And number ten, Face Off. I'm so happy this was a success. <laughs> yeah. And in part because of that, there is currently a sequel in development. Of course. Yeah. They announced a remake in 2019, and then last year they announced that Adam Wingard was going to direct it, and he was like, it's not a remake, it's a sequel. (laughs) I feel like the CGI we have today could make for a very cool face-swapping scene. Yes, but I prefer the practical effect of, like, the weird face floating in the goop. Like, I would rather see that than watch, like... I want that, but I also, like, the actual surgery part of it just felt like watching surgery, which I didn't like. I do want the face swapping to be a bit more sci-fi, but I do want a face still floating in goop. I like that it looked like surgery because it felt like the movie doubling down on it. No, this is a thing that can be done. This is reasonable. We don't have to invent stuff for this. You just need a smart enough scientist who knows how to reattach the face. I assumed that they were going to have to justify why Nicolas Cage looks like John Travolta now by saying, like, they had to attach his face to keep it viable or something. But it's even better just seeing it floating in some goop. Yeah, and that they just leave Travolta's face floating in goop for hours? Maybe a day? Like, they all say, all right, Caster Troy is in a coma, we got Sean Archer off to his job. I guess we can all go home, just leave Caster Troy unguarded, and leave this face floating in goop. I feel like they should have put him in a medically induced coma, even if he was in a coma. Yeah, and I think they should have put the face in the fridge. Maybe that's a walk-in fridge. No, it's a Travolta fridge. My god. Will, <laughs> that took me a <laughs> second, but I hated it. <laughs> Honestly, it took me a second to realize you did not mean Christopher Walken. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. I have, like, very quietly watched at least one movie a day so far in 2022. And I'm not, like, trying to be super aggressive about it, but I'm just kind of, like, waiting and seeing, like, at some point there's going to be a day where I don't watch one. But we don't yet know what day that will be. I, I can't commit to that. My attention span is too short. Too much TV to watch. Much to learn. You should go for uh for 500 movies in 500 days, like uh, Greg Turkington and on cinema. I mean, one could only aspire to being as great a film watcher as Greg Turkington. <laughs> I did get my letterbox year in review a couple days ago, and <laughs> it said that I watched approximately 26 days worth of movies in 2021. <laughs> so not quite a month of the year. But almost one-twelfth of the year spent watching movies yeah good year i'm off to a good start for 2022 because i saw drive my car and that thing's three hours well we gotta choose a tight 90 soon because these like four over two hour movies in a row has been very tight on my scheduling yeah we will uh we'll see what we can do there i'm sure valentine's day will breeze by and i i mean that movie could be 30 minutes and i think it will not breeze by is it from the same director as Love Actually? Because that was pretty that was pretty hefty, no, right? Lo- Love Actually is long. That's a Richard Curtis movie. This is our guy Gary Marshall. It is 124 minutes. God. 
How? But when you think about it, it's probably like 10 minutes per romance. Yeah. I just, that's, that movie's going to kill me. I think that movie will be the death of me. Maybe for Mark's sake, you could do We Love the Love Bites and little uh, quick bites for each romance in Valentine's Day. Well, I'm a big fan of quick bites, but it's hard to identify them now because all the quick bites are on the Roku channel and they are not separately identified. They are labeled as Roku originals. (laughs) Sort of like Roku artisan. It's exactly like that, where it's kind of a fraud. Quibby (laughs) is a thing that happened. It's so funny. Uh, I loved that their entire marketing campaign, which rolled out right before the first in a century pandemic, was entirely based around the idea of like, Quibi is a weird word. And it was like all the celebrities who appeared in Quibi shows being like, I'm sorry, what is a Quibi? So they call a trainer a sneaker, a jumper, a sweater, and a few minutes of Quibi? Yep. A strange country. I think it's also just so funny that they released a a commuting-focused app. It was like, you could watch this on the train before we all stopped going on trains entirely. Look, there were a lot of problems with Quibi, like the fact that you could not take screenshots or make GIFs, which made it impossible to talk about them with anybody. So, like, how did you know that Rachel Brosnahan had a golden arm? It was hard to tell. I have to say, this face-off itself almost reminds me of a lot of the Quibi premises or maybe vice versa in that they sound like they would be premises in a fictional movie or film. They all sound like yeah. 30 Rock jokes. Right. And Quibi itself is a 30 Rock joke. In season one, Will Arnett pitches bite-sized TV that you watch on the internet. It's like the flip phones. It's for your sidekick or something to watch TV. I'm just waiting for Milf Island to hit real TV. I mean, is that not Bachelor in Paradise? Not really. <laughs> Because I gotta say, the actual implication of having 12-year-olds involved in a reality show in any context. Well, Mark, you know about Kid Nation, right? Yes, of course. I know about Kid Nation. Yeah. But no one's seen it. I've looked I think for it's it against. The, I think it's against the Geneva Convention to watch that TV show. Um, I have found it Wait. on YouTube. Mark, we have to acknowledge the Geneva Convention line in this movie. At the prison. Oh, the where Geneva the, Convention does not yeah, apply in the, the prison. The prison guard is marching up and down and announces that Amnesty International does not know about this place and that the Geneva Convention does not apply. The entirety of Kid Nation is on YouTube. Oh my god, of course it is. The funny thing is whenever people say, like, the Geneva Convention does not apply, I mean, it also just doesn't apply in that situation because... It seems that they are all American citizens on American soil, in which case the Geneva Convention does not apply. (laughs) But you know what? Still a great movie. Oh, definitely. Should we start? I mean, the thing is, it's like, we're going to get into the romance, but... And then we're done. Like, once we talk about the romance, we're done. And I don't want to stop talking about it. I know. But I think we got to dive into it, because the scene where, like, Caster Troy meets john travolta's daughter will haunt me forever oh my gosh so every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to guide conversation tim as our guest will you guide us will you take us to point number one yes so i was a little unsure about how to do this because you could view the object of the romantic relationship uh so one half is always joan allen as eve archer But on the other half, you could have either whoever looks like John Travolta 
or whoever Sean Archer is, or throw in some combination of the two of them. So I've decided to frame it as just Sean Archer, the actual individual, no matter what he looks like. But I don't think you can understand the romance without also diving into what happens with uh, Caster Troy in the body or wearing the face of Sean Archer. So diving into point number one is just kind of our setup. This is how the movie starts. We've got Sean Archer. He's a husband and father. Uh, He had two children. One of them died at a young age, say about whatever merry-go-round age is. Um, He was shot by a mercenary who was aiming for Sean while they were at a carousel. And so he's been grieving since, and you can tell it's had a huge effect on the relationship. We are told early on in the movie that basically he has informed his wife that as long as Caster Troy is at large, that's his number one priority, catching Caster Troy. And like, he will focus on his family when all that's done. And in the meantime, they seem to like occasionally attempt to have a relationship with each other. But like, it's been a long time since they've had sex with each other. Like she seems really unsettled by how distant he is and really excited when it seems like he is going to be coming back. And what I liked is they don't, hate each other because of it right they're not yelling at each other over this it's not melodramatic it's just there's a sort of numbness that's grown there over the years Mm -hmm. yeah and it seems like she understands this is the form that his grief has taken and she's trying to be understanding of his grief throughout the movie even when the body swap the face swap rather has happened and caster troy doesn't realize that it's the anniversary of the son mikey's death she's like is this how you're handling today by just like pretending it's not a big day like she's working hard that is by the way an extremely this we're jumping ahead there but it is an extremely funny scene because he doesn't know exactly what he's saying by blowing it off he thinks it's like you know maybe breakfast or something he's like yeah guess i'll just go into work i don't feel like it and it's supposed to be visiting their son's grave on the anniversary of his death right so he kind of once he finds out what it is he kicks in a gear a little bit Uh, The last thing I want to mention on point number one, this is not part of the romance, really, but um, he does have a daughter who is uh, high school age. And, you know, you can tell he's been distant with her as well. He's not really keeping track of what's going on in her life. And it's strained a little bit of the relationship between her and her mother. Sort of the epitome of him not realizing is she says, you know, look at your daughter, look at what she looks like now. And he looks at her face. And there's horror movie music and like a Hitchcock zoom in (laughs) on her wearing like spider eyebrows where they're sticking out on both sides and, you know, pointy and an inch long or not eyebrows, eyelashes. It's like what a punk would look like in Never Been Kissed. And it's very funny because it's never really remarked on again, but just just a nice little that's the John Woo touch. It is one of the least like shocking of a shocking teenage outfit reveals. Yeah, but we're told that she's gone through a lot of makeovers, and I wrote this down. What Sean says to his daughter, you change the way you look every week and the way you act. Who are you supposed to be now? Which, you know, in a movie about people changing the way they look, who are you? I mean, all I gotta say is if he were to run his fingers down her face, it would probably smudge that makeup. But he's not really running his hands down people's faces. He's lost that connection to his family. He's not doing it as much. It's so weird. One of the first and last shots of this movie involve John Travolta just running his hand, stroking down the face of a child. And that's what's beautiful. So the plot point two is pretty soon afterward. Uh, So in between, John Travolta locates Caster Troy, hunts him down, 
him and his brother. His brother's apprehended, his brother Pollux Troy, and Castor Troy is apparently killed, uh, as far as Sean Archer knows. So he comes home and announces to his wife that he's walking away from the job for good, and he can finally be at peace. He walks into the room and she says, I'm glad it's you that woke me and not a phone call telling me you won't be home. So you can see the, the relationship is starting to repair. And soon afterward, he finds out that Castor Troy is, in fact, uh, or before he finds out that Castor Troy is alive, um, he finds out that Castor and Pollux plan to detonate a bomb uh, in a crowded area. He doesn't know where. He doesn't know when. Uh, maybe he knows when. He doesn't know where. And so he needs to find out from Pollux what it is. So he's back in the force. He tells his wife and she says, you don't need to tell me to tell me what you do. You you never have. So it's that sort of independent streak. You know, we're still distant from each other. We can't connect with each other. This job and this, you know, the hunt for these brothers um, and what they've done is standing between us. I got to bring one thing up. I know we've said repeatedly that the how the face swap work doesn't matter. And in fact, makes total sense because of the way that your face is not attached to any muscles beneath it. It's just attached to skin around the rim. What I don't understand is why a face swap needs to happen. Because Comfior, as the scientist, shows us that they can 3D print an ear. And it's like a perfectly good ear that works. So what I don't understand is why they have to take Caster Troy's face. Can't they just take off Sean Archer's face and then 3D print a Caster Troy face for him? Well, the problem is you don't want two Caster Troys in case he wakes up. So it's two birds with one stone. You make sure there's only one Castor Troy face running around. But then you just put him in an induced coma. Like, look, obviously the movie is what it is, and it's great because it is what it is. But I was never, like, they should not have shown us the 3D printing ear. Because it just feels like an answer that solves the problem of the movie. I, I do really like seeing this film as a beautiful sweater that's also beautiful and a lot of fun to just pick apart even though you know you're destroying the sweater in the process. And that's that's one of those things. Yeah. All right. Can I move on to plot point three? Yes, please. There, so he's going to do one last job. So there's a lot of, I guess, it's not really 2.5, but three requires a lot of explanation. Uh, starting with the surgery that he gets. So his face is sliced off. Nick Cage's face is sliced off and they're switched. What's funny is as fun as the surgery was to watch, I actually found more fun like the 10 cutaways to Robert Wisdom watching it, who's his buddy at the counterterrorism unit, and just wincing in different ways every single time. Also, the so they slice off his face, and then they decide to give him a haircut to match Nick Cage's haircut. And well, I would have, have thought to. That, I would have thought you would have done that in the opposite order for some reason. Like, just minimize the amount of time that the face is off and, like, make sure... Because what if they, what if they like bungle the haircut, right? You don't, they slice the face off. They're like, oh, this haircut just isn't going to cut it. We can't, we can't go through with it. We got to, you know, sew the face back on. Like, I, I feel like you'd want to do some least cost avoidance there. I mean, I got to say, they do not rush the process because they're also planning on just keeping the face in goop for like a week or however long it takes. So... Skipping a lot of the plot, but as pertinent to the romance, Caster Troy wakes up in the coma. He's there alone in the hospital. John Travolta's face is there. Caster Troy has his associates bring in the doctor who did the surgery, puts John Travolta's face on, and decides to start living out John Travolta slash Sean Archer's life. And so this is not really a plot point for our relationship, but it's important. He comes home 
and starts living as father Sean Archer and husband Sean Archer. So, you know, he doesn't even recognize the house. He clearly is not cut out to this, you know, domestic suburbia living, is resentful and disdainful of it. His wife can sense he's very different, but is not immediately turned off by it. You know, she says this is very strange, but some part of her is saying at least he's, you know, starting to be a little livelier, a little more into me. Have to mention that he walks into his or Sean Archer's daughter's bedroom. Oh my gosh. He sees her and, you know, she's a a comely woman. And uh, he (laughs) says to himself, although you'd think she could hear, the plot thickens. Yeah. And by the way, when he walks in, she's wearing like a t-shirt and panties and is talking on the phone, telling this guy, Carl, that she liked the poem he emailed her. And is she smoking a cigarette or there's just a pack of cigarettes out on the table? I think there's just a pack out. So he, you know, says hello. He says some flirty things and then he reaches across, grabs a cigarette and starts smoking it. And they basically make a pact not to tell uh, Eve Archer about their respective smoking habits. And the way he justifies his newfound behavior is by saying it's because of the weight of Caster Troy's death being lifted off his shoulders and is it there or is it in the office that he says things are going to be a whole lot different around here from now on i think that's in the office where he says it but that's like the implication that he's trying to give in other things he does uh he cooks his wife a lobster dinner which clearly the actual sean archer had not done for a while if ever i mean cooking um, lobster is not the easiest thing in the world those were some good looking lobsters yeah. too he puts on chopin's uh prelude in d flat major the raindrop prelude uh, which is a little trite, but, you know, beautiful piece. Uh, of course, visits the grave site. Meanwhile, plot point three. We've talked about Nick Cage, actual Sean Archer. Oh, did we say that he has sex with Joan Allen? Uh, we didn't, but yes, they, they live as man and wife, as Caster Troy puts it when talking to Sean Archer. So in the meantime, you know, Sean Archer's obviously very worried, figures out what's going on, and calls Eve and says, you know, Get Jamie out of the house. Get yourself out of the house. Of course, she doesn't, you know, really suspect anything's going on. Says weirdo, you know, hangs up, which leads to plot point three, the confrontation. No, honey, please, please don't scream. Don't scream. I'm not going to hurt you. Don't, 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 don't. Just don't, don't look at my face and the voice. Don't. Listen, just I know who you are. You killed her! I did not kill her son. I'm Sean. Last time I saw you was in this room. We had a fight when I said I had to go away again. I spent the night in Mike's old bed. So he makes his way to the house. He goes into... Uh, I guess the living room where Eve is there and he explains everything to her. Says faces got switched. Of course, Eve doesn't really have a lot of proof to believe this. She does agree that Sean's behavior has been very strange and is almost willing to believe that his face is actually that Sean is not Sean. But she's not as willing to believe that this guy with Nick Cage's face is her husband. Yeah, this is the face of the man who murdered her son. Uh, so. Plot point four is next. Anything on that? Have I skipped anything? Because that just covered a lot of the movie. I mean, I was just going to say, when we're focusing on the romance, we are going to be missing a lot of the plot of this movie. That's the thing. Like, we skip the entire prison sequence, but that's how it goes. 
it is funny. Like, yes, there are a lot of scenes that have nothing to do with the wives and the kids and even, you know, the brother. But it really I think ultimately the story is about these two families. And in fact, this actually brings me to a point I want to make and how, you know, each kind of has the opportunity. Each has been failing their family in some way. Right. And each put in the other's position has the opportunity to do some things right that the other was doing wrong based on how their character is different. So what's interesting is I think, you know, Caster Troy, you can see he actually does some things that Sean Archer either wouldn't or couldn't do. And the the movie kind of hints he has the opportunity to be a better Sean Archer than Sean Archer ever was to his family. You know, there's the scene where Jamie comes home. She's been on a date. The guy pulls up in the driveway. She says she wants to go inside. She doesn't want to do anything. He starts preparing to do some horrible things to her in the car. Right. He's forcing himself on her. Right. Caster Troy comes out and smashes the window, beats the heck out of the guy. And, you know, whether the force was excessive, it's strongly implied that Sean Archer would not have been there at all. No one would have been home because Sean Archer's so committed to the job that he would have, you know, either been in his office or been out on the hunt and not around to protect his family like that. Right. And like we're focused, and I think reasonably, on the Archer's marriage. That's the one the movie's most interested in. But you're right that, and I hadn't really thought about it this way, like as a story of these two families, because there's also the fact that uh, Caster Troy has this relationship with um, Gina Gershon's character. With Gina Gershon, right. And like they have a kid together that apparently he did not realize was his kid because she says it as a revelation to Sean in Caster Troy's body. And Sean then, well, for starters, he hugs the kid and calls him Mikey repeatedly. But then, like, is kind of taking on that role of protecting this family in a way that he had not really been engaged with his own family. So on the one hand, we see them take to aspects of one another's lives, but like you said, Tim, like also bring themselves in ways that make them almost better versions of each other. So that takes us to point four. Oh, I guess the last thing I forgot in point three was that Sean Archer wearing Nick Cage slash Caster Troy's face at the Archer's house tells his wife, my blood type is, I forget what, what the blood types are, but say he says my He's blood like type is- like O positive or O negative or something. O positive. Caster Troy's is AB negative. The face swap didn't affect our blood type. Scan the blood and tell me what blood type the guy that you're sleeping with, with my face is. And so she's a nurse or a doctor. I forget which. And she's a doctor. She's a doctor. She goes to the hospital and she checks the blood type after taking a blood sample while the guy's sleeping next to her. And so, in fact, the blood type is a match for Caster Troy rather than Sean Archer. So then Sean Archer comes to the hospital, explains everything or, you know, rather than explain clinically and technically what happened, says, you know, as we've been waiting for the whole movie, him to say something that only he would know, which is the story of their first date, uh, which is a very sweet story. I remember I once took a date out for surf and turf, not knowing she was a vegetarian. So she ate bread. And, uh, and broke her tooth on a rice seat. <laughs> we, we drove around all night uh, looking for an for a, a all-night dentist. And, and he, uh, he was so drunk, he fixed the wrong tooth. 
And when I finally brought her home, even though it must have hurt like hell, you, you, you kissed me. Yeah. I assume at the end of it, like, he stood on her doorstep and they had, like, an awkward moment of, like, is he going to do it? Is he not going to do it? And then he did it. He ran his hand down her face so that she could <laughs> feel that it. close connection. Uh-huh. Uh, so, plot point five. Before that, there is a long, drawn-out fight. Eve and Jamie are used as hostages. Eve reports that the face swap happened because everyone who otherwise would know has been killed so the the counterterrorism unit figures out what's happened there's a chase and at the end of the chase caster troy is killed so plot point five is the final scene in the movie this is um, adam he needs a place to live hi my name's jamie i'm adam You show Adam his new room. Come on. Okay. They've gotten a team of doctors that have managed to figure out the face swap, put Caster Troy's face back, or Sean Archer's face back on Sean Archer. And he yeah, walks. wait, do we think they put Caster Troy's face back on his corpse? Probably. I feel like that's the the reasonable thing to do. But, like, does it matter? I guess. I mean, depends on how you get rid of him. Because if he's being cremated, you could just chuck the face in the box. Yeah, you, just, you just toss it in there like a Frisbee. I mean, I feel like, put it this way. They definitely tried that face swapping procedure on cadavers first, right? So he becomes yeah, yeah. one more cadaver that they tested on. Like, there's probably med school students in the face-off universe that are now learning with Caster Troy's face how to do <laughs> the face on and off. I like that answer. So here's my other question, Tim, as we deal with this fifth point. So... We know Sean gets his face put back on. The next time we see him, he is arriving home, and he has this child. That's the first time we see him with his face back. Do we think it is the first time Joan Allen has seen him with his face back? Yes. Because it felt that way to me. Yes. Oh, it absolutely is. But what that means is he got his face back on. He probably had to, like, recover for a bit. And then he got out of the hospital. And before going home to see his wife and his daughter, he went to wherever Caster Troy's kid was being held, somehow got his hands on this child and was like, you're going to come home and live with me as my son. And so yeah, shows but Will, up. Don't you, know, don't you know a promise to a dying mother is a legally binding contract? I thought it was like right of conquest. Like he murdered Caster Troy and thereby had the right to claim his son. Well, there, there's the other possibility, which is instead of him going to the son, he had the son brought to him before the surgery said, you know, I want to wake up to see, you know, this little boy so I can, you know, pretend it's my son. The first thing I do with my new face. This is, it's one of those strands of the sweater, Tim. It is a thing that fundamentally <laughs> does not make any sense. It is very funny, though, because clearly he hasn't, I mean, I don't know if he had a cell phone, but you would have thought he used the hospital phone to just say, like, I'm bringing home a, a friend or a special guy or something. Because I have adopted a child. <laughs> he, he walks in through the door. Of course, he does say, is it all right if he, you know, stays here? So maybe, If not, you can just kick this kid off the porch right now. Right. Maybe he hadn't gone through. He's like, before I do all the paperwork, like, I want to know it's okay with my family. And maybe it's like, before I check that it's okay with my family, I want them to see the kid, you know? 
I want them to have the opportunity to touch to run his their face. Hand down his face, which is exactly what the daughter does. Like, it's not just Sean. This is a family thing. His teenage daughter is like, oh, come into our house, runs her hand down his face. It's great. I, I really, I don't know how I would handle that situation. This movie is so good. But it does beg the question. Do you find the romance between Sean and his wife believable? Oh, what do you man. think, Tim? So, I mean, there's different ways to answer this question, right? Is There's in the aggregate of their relationship, there's does it make sense that she takes him back after this traumatic experience? I'm going to say yes. In this universe, yes. I think that the impression that I get from the first chunk of the movie really is that there's an understanding between these two people that they are grieving in different ways and that they're doing their best to support each other, even though they're grieving in ways that neither can really fully engage with. Which I think creates space for more understanding in all of this. Honestly, I think it's the last scene that's the deal breaker. I think there's no way. Yeah. Um, you know, Tim, you're the only one on this show who is currently married. So maybe you can give me and Mark some advice as engaged people. Like, if your wife came home, like, I have adopted, a, like, an eight-year-old. Would you just be like, yes, of course, come well, on Well, I mean, if she said I adopted an eight-year-old that I made a promise to someone on their deathbed to take care of. I mean, those are, those are legally binding. I can say that as a lawyer, but I do think, you know, speaking, speaking to this part, it is really funny that she didn't pick him up at the hospital. Like, like, right. Hey, Hey honey, you know, surgery's today. I, I should be just waiting to see his silhouette. You might have through to wait a half hour. You think, you think that she has the security clearance to go to the face off hospital? She could go to like the, this is a secret government least, procedure like the ride or something. Uh, I, have to say if nick came home with a child that's how i would know that he had been face <laughs> that is when i would do the blood test and try and figure out which of his rivals he has swapped faces with i just as long as we're talking about this you know the kid i do want to point out the names so his name or the kid's name is adam the wife's name is eve the brothers' names are Castor and Pollux, which are the twin stars for Gemini. The kid's name who, you know, the actual Michael Archer is the kid who dies in the first scene. Michael, like the Archangel Michael. James was one of the apostles. And Archer is, you know, like a uh, an archer from mythology. So there's, there's sort of, you've got your biblical, you've got your Greek mythology. There's a lot of different stuff going on here. And I think John Woo probably just thought it sounded cool. But I do think there's a little gum to chew on if if you're willing to stretch your mind a little bit. Yeah, I also think nobody has ever looked less like a Sean than John Woo. (laughs) (laughs) That is very accurate. But, Tim, every week we do rate the believability of the romance on a 10-point scale. With one being the least and ten being the most believable, where would you rate this movie? So, given everything else that happens, I am—I'm not going to give it a ten, or I'm, I'm going to give it a, a six, and that's because I'm okay. weighing. You know, they do love each other, and Sean Archer is nothing but a hero for the entire movie, other than arguably the decision he makes to potentially traumatize himself and his family by donning this face. But he, you know, he does it for the greater good because he's trying to stop a bomb. And on the other hand, I do see how this could be one of those things that's such a traumatic experience that he and his wife just kind of want to start over with new people and they can't ever possibly see each other without thinking of this experience. Right. Like that's kind of horrifying. Like every time 
you look in the mirror, every time Eve looks at her husband, there's like a part of you that's like, this was like the worst person I've ever encountered. And also, he showed up with an unexpected child. But again, that child's name is Adam. So like rebirth, you know, a little, there's there's a little bit there. I think you're right. I think it's like a six because I do think it is more yeah. believable than not. But it, it's weird. I feel good with the six too. That's what I was thinking. So do we think that uh, that uh, Sean and Eve are dateable? Um, I'm going to say Eve is dateable. I mean, she's she's pretty much perfect. She kind of has to be for the movie to work. Like, we have to believe, like, yeah. this is a good life that he can get back to. She is classic action movie perfect wife. But she yeah. stays alive, and I love that for her. And she does, like, get to do a thing. Like, she's a little more, like, Nev Campbell in Skyscraper than, like, the most thankless version. Yes. Sean Archer, no, for me. Absolutely I think, not. you know, Sean contains multitudes. I like to think that everything that he does when he's actually caster troy is something that sean archer is also capable of in some sense like this very kind of campy performance that he gives like sean archer has a little tiny bit of that inside of him that could break out yeah but i just i don't want to date that's that's very true uh if you did have to pick one person to date though who would you choose i think it's i think it's got to be eve i think maybe maybe gina gershon as a dark horse but i don't I think it, it's Eve all the way for me. I'm going to go with Margaret Cho. <laughs> I was going to go with Margaret Cho, too. <laughs> she uh, seems fun. She does seem fun. She cracks a joke at the office when Caster Troy as Sean Archer shows up, and she's like, oh, did you have a surgery? And he's freaking out like, oh, my gosh, she knows. And she says, yeah, to get that stick out of your butt. It's good. That role was originally going to be Chow Yun-Fat, who was in a ton of John Woo movies in Hong Kong, but then he had a conflict, so... Wu cast Margaret Cho because his daughter thought she was funny. Hey, I mean, she is. She was right. Now, do you think that Sean and Eve will stay together? As it's presented at the end of the movie, I think yes. I mean, they have a kid. Yeah, I agree. They have two kids. They, right. They have yeah, a new they kid. raise this stranger's child. No, not a stranger. The international mercenary terrorist who murdered their other child. His child. Ah, uh, Yes. I don't know if it really counts as his child if he never knew that he had a son. Well, it, it probably helps that the kid looks nothing like Nick Cage. I think that helps most kids. <laughs> Guys, I gotta know. Should Face Off be made into a Broadway musical? And why is the answer yes? A hard yes. I would love to see it. Because it would require so little effort. Right, I mean, it's the thing of the biggest special effect is just acting. It is people being able to act like one another. And, like, it's a little easier in a movie because we have an established relationship with John Travolta and Nick Cage. Like, we come in being able to put a little bit of their movie star personas on them, but also, like, we know who they are. And so when they are acting, literally acting like one another, we can map that onto them. So, like, on stage, you've got to do a little more to build that relationship for the audience, but you just have to do a switch. Like, it sounds more complicated than it is to the point that at one point, an executive at Warner Brothers, when they had the option on the script, they were like, you know, the, the special effects are going to have to be really good if the audience is going to buy this. And they're like, no, it's not a special effect. Like, they just switch roles. I do have to say, Face Off the Musical sounds very much like the sequel to Work Harder, Die Trying Girl. I just have to figure out what the s sassy, what, what do they say? The sassy spiritual sister film of Face Off is. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't I don't think there was no point during this movie where I thought I would not like to see how these characterizations could get even nuttier by adding singing and dancing. So I am all in on the Broadway. And John Woo, even though like he's very much like a cinematic director in his use of like slow motion and stuff like that, his action sequences are very like balletic. Like it's easy to imagine that being transformed into dance. Uh, there has not been a face-off musical yet. There should be. Um, some Daily Show writers did adapt it into iambic pentameter and put it on in Brooklyn in the summer of 2019. Wow. I mean, that sounds also excellent. Yeah. But I think that is about it for Face Off. I'm delighted that we all got to watch this together. What a blast. Thank you, Tim, for being on this episode because your insight was needed. Wouldn't miss it for the world. For this wonderful film. Next week, we will be covering a film called Mississippi Burning that I know nothing about. So this is part of our sort of intermittent miniseries on the Best Picture nominees of 1988. Mississippi Burning is a drama about the FBI search for the three Freedom Summer activists who were murdered by Klansmen in 1964. It stars uh, Willem Dafoe and Gene Hackman, both of whom are pretty good in it. And we will talk about its many problems next week. <laughs> until then you can follow the show on facebook and twitter at love the love pod and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at love the love pod at gmail.com make sure to rate review and subscribe especially on apple podcasts to help other people find the show all right tim last question what is the best piece of dating advice we got from face off make sure your spouse knows your blood type and you know theirs i don't even know my own blood type will that is terrible also, I wouldn't be surprised if a somehow knew your blood type, though, so... It is possible. Uh, my advice, sometimes you gotta switch things up. Try being a new person, if only for one night. But Mark, you change the way you look every week, and the way you act. Who are you supposed to be now? Ugh. I do think sometimes you gotta switch things up would be a great tagline for this movie if it were a Disney Channel original movie. Yes, and honestly, I would love to see the DCOM version of Face Off. The but it would just be like, Tim, I feel like you would have read these more likely than Mark. The series of books when we were growing up that was like, help, I'm trapped in yes. like X's body. My teacher, like, my like principal. Those, those would have made good DCOMs. Will? Uh, my dating advice. <sighs> I guess like you can support someone through something without necessarily understanding it. And I think that at the beginning of the movie, it seems like Sean and Eve are not doing the best job of that, but they are working hard at it. And that, honestly, like, that seems to be what has kept their relationship going. Ugh, so sappy. Just like this movie, man! <laughs> it is very sappy movie. But anyway, until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye.